John Hanson here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike Leonard here as well. Mike, how you doing, my friend? John, great to see you. How are you? You're good. You seem intrigued by this question of the day. Yeah, I just don't have a clue. And I was asking you, what what stops listeners from just Googling it? Is there <laughs> is there is there like a WGN spy police out there? Yeah, the right. John Hanson mobile? Yes, I am yeah. checking your browsers to make sure you <laughs> uh, you don't do that. Let's go. You mind if I take a couple other guesses? Sure. All right. Let's go to Jolene. Jolene, you're on WGN. What is your guess, Jolene? My guess. My guess is he was divorced while in office. Interesting guess. I don't think there's been a president to actually get divorced in office. I'm going to double check, um, and I don't think it was James Polk. In fact, I, he was married throughout his term. In fact, I think the only two presidents that have ever been divorced is President Trump and President Reagan, which is interesting. So, there and that goes. was pre-Nancy. And that was pre-Nancy, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. That was pre-being in office. All right, yeah. Jolene, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. For sure. Let's go to Doris. Doris, you're on WGN. Hello there. How are you doing? How about Speaker of the House in 1835? And then President. So Speaker of the and House and President. president. Yep. Ten years later in 1845. That is the answer to the question of the day. Congratulations, Doris. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's very topical right now, the Speaker of the House. And Doris, uh, uh, we appreciate your time. And uh, stay on the line. We'll get you a uh, American Weathermakers weather station, okay? Thank you. If you can send some sunshine along, that'd be great. <laughs> I'll do my best. Which suburb are you? Where are you at calling from, Doris? Actually, I'm out here in sunny LaSalle, Illinois, by Starved Rock State Park. Starved Rock. So is it sunny out there right now or no? Yes, the sun is here. The clouds are just hiding it. Oh, well, oh, yeah, very true. Yeah, we'll do our best, Doris. Congratulations for getting the uh, answer right there. You had to know. Come on, Mike. That was where I was I going. I had no went. clue. So that's the only guy in history who was speaker and later president. That's yeah, it? It's very rare. It's yeah. very rare. I mean, most, most presidents for a long time, maybe a couple terms in the House, they come out of the Senate usually, yep. or vice president or governors. And there's yep. been trends in time where, pres- like, I think Joe Biden is the first president who was a vice president since bush the first who was the first in like a hundred years or something like that that wow. was a for a while not a common pop john pipeline. you know your stuff are you i know my you, presidential you history wikipedia on the weekends <laughs> or those old encyclopedias you had as a kid what are, oh, you, what are you doing i loved the old encyclopedias we didn't have a set my piano teacher had a set oh those were hilarious and i, I would them. purposely bike to her lessons while she was still teaching the person before me so i could just get an encyclopedia book and scroll oh, through they it. were classic we had those on the shelf when i was a kid and if you had to write a report for school, mm-hmm. since there's no internet, and right, you're course. a kid, and what are you going to do? So you'd go and read up on some topic and then regurgitate it back <laughs> as a report, right. which is pretty funny. Exactly. You're a busy man. You start a new trial on Monday, don't you? Yeah, we got a Medicare fraud case coming up in federal court starting Monday, um, which should be a lot of fun. It's it's nice to have a client where you really feel strongly about their innocence. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun challenge. Do you gear up for this stuff? I mean, like, are you? excited tomorrow so you, do you get the sunday scaries before a trial like the rest of us get before going to work on a monday yeah i'm always i'm totally pumped about starting it so kind of getting ready for almost like a performance or a drama or something like that you know what i mean uh but yeah you're, you're of course nervous because you want to do a great job and you know you're if you're not nervous you're not worrying about everything enough but but you also have a comfort level of being in that room trying cases in front of juries that you're you you relish it so it's kind of a kind of mixed bag right but you're excited to go to work that morning. Oh, absolutely. Every day during trial, you're totally pumped. And then when you get done, it's kind of weird because it's sort of a letdown back to real life. Um, mm-hmm. 
But uh, yeah, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I want to get into the uh, Idaho, the Moscow, Idaho case. I know we have a caller, Justine, stay on the line for that one. Um, but we only got about 30 seconds before the news. You had a question for me about cheeseburgers? Yeah, I wanted to know if, you know, did you read that recent list? It was like Cranes or Chicago Trib or Chicago Magazine, 19 best cheeseburgers in Chicago. Oh, I think I might have actually read some of it. Was Cheval and Small Cheval yeah. both on the list? Yeah, of course, yeah. the usual suspects. But I wanted to ask you about one to see if you had been there yet and get your take on it. Because I know you're a man about town, John. Right. I, can I tell you which is my favorite burger? And maybe it just happens to be the place you're talking you're about. You're going to ruin it before we go to the break and no. come back All and right. keep everyone in suspense? <laughs> Fine, ask your question. Okay, have you been to the Loyalist in Chicago? Ooh, no, I have not. All right, we'll, we'll discuss, John. All right, we'll discuss the Loyalists, our favorite cheeseburgers, and law, too. That's what we do yeah, here. We'll on get the, into law. We'll get into law. law. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. If you have any questions for a federal defense attorney, he's right here. Whistleblower cases, all sorts of stuff. Stuff you see in the news. Mike Leonard is the man to answer them. 312-981-7200. We'll do all that after the news. WGN, Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Mike, you ready to dive into some cases? Let's do it, John. Let's do it. The Idaho, uh, Moscow, Idaho case is incredibly scary, freaky, and we got some huge developments, obviously, with an arrest and a, um, a hearing and some details. We actually have a caller that wants to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Justine, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. Hi. How are and you? And happy belated New Year to all of you. Yeah, you too as well. Que- Thank you. My question relates to those Idaho murder cases. Mm-hmm. They keep talking about something called cell evidence. What the heck is that all about? Cell tower mm-hmm. evidence. Mike, your thoughts? Very good question. First of all, I see you're from a 414 area code. You you don't happen to be a Packers fan, do you? Because we, I don't know if we can answer the question, John. Can we? <laughs> oh, yeah. We need support from down there for you guys for a change. Oh, yeah, um, right. Well, Justin, don't we count can't, on us. We can't, get, we can't give it to you. Yeah. We, you know, just because, you know, the yeah. Rogers factor and you know, the borders. <laughs> Come on, it's a, it's well, a do or die situation tomorrow. Well, well a lot of Chicago people are hoping for die, right, John? For the Packers? Yeah, yeah but, I yeah. betcha. Let's be nice to Justine. David Hochberg hung up on a uh, on a Packer fan earlier today. Oh, we I would never do we that. We don't I'm, do that on this I'm show. I'm much more of a professional. So what yeah, Justine Mike, is... don't do it. <laughs> so what, what Justine is talking about is, in the Idaho case, there's been a lot of publicity about what the evidence is so far, right? And in, in a lot of these cases, especially violent crime cases, um, gun cases, you know, non white collar cases oftentimes the evidence relates to cell tower evidence right and so uh, what's been reported so far in the moscow case is that one of the pieces of corroborating evidence is that number one the suspect's cell phone was turned off you know intentionally during the the two hours that they think is critical to Mm -hmm. when the murder was committed and then secondly they likely have what's called historical cell cell tower data which would show approximate locations of him during certain time periods so approximate yeah so and 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 so what happens is you know if you have a cell phone which we all do and unless it's completely turned off it's communicating with cell towers all day long even if you set it down it doesn't matter if you're using it or not it's communicating with the cell tower so typically it's going to make contact communication with the strongest cell tower which is usually closest not always not always right so the law enforcement either for a subpoena or for a warrant can get your historical cell site information, which can tell them not only what calls and texts you made, but what cell towers they essentially communicated or bounced off with. In other words, pinged against, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's not always, it's not 
100% scientific, but it's, you know, strong corroborating evidence because it, the cell tower that you hit is not always the one that's nearest to you, but typically it is. And so what it can give you is a general location. And, you know, it certainly can include someone and can also exclude you, you know? Right. So for instance, if your cell phone was pinging off a tower in Wisconsin at that point in time, uh, likely you weren't in Idaho committing the murders, right? right. Um, so the, the evidence will be obviously key in that case, various pieces, but the cell tower cell evidence will certainly be something that prosecutors will rely upon heavily. And the phone being turned off, I mean, that's not necessarily evidence of that he did it, but it could be used as, um, I mean, just building that narrative, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just another piece of circumstantial evidence. You know, the fact that his cell phone turns up, was turned off proves nothing, right? But it, it's another piece of circumstantial evidence that the prosecutors will try to use in a body of other evidence, you know, circumstantial to prove that this was the individual who did it. They'll argue that he knowingly turned it off during those two particular hours and had it on otherwise because he intended to commit a crime. That's what they'll argue, certainly. Justine, thanks for the phone call, okay? Yes. Have a great day. Thank you. And then, Take um, care, Justine. That, I, I, can't, I can't say good luck to the Packers though, oh, as no. you go. That cell phone case, you know, when I think of cell phone evidence, I go back to the Serial podcast, and uh, that was back in 2001. Has that technology improved since then, or is it still pretty rudimentary, cell phone pings with a nearby tower? Well, the, t- the technology is pretty sophisticated. I mean, what happens, especially in federal court cases, if it's a case where, you know, the evidence is relevant in terms of people's locations, and it's usually used as corroboration. You know, John, you can't prove a case based on cell tower evidence, just one piece. And what prosecutors are going to do is try to show, hey, this shows that he was in this vicinity, most likely during this time period, right? And they can also show your progression as you travel, as you're pinging off other cell towers. So in federal court cases, what they do is they do a big dog and pony show, so to speak. They have a person who comes in who is a very jury-friendly, a good-looking man or woman who's an expert witness on this technology. They sit up there. They're well-coached. They've testified numerous times across the country, and they look right at the jury, and it's like they're just giving them a class from their standpoint on the cell tower technology. Well, the prosecutor would just say, this is just an expert laying this out in a clear manner, Mike. Well, sure, of course, but you know, you, you, they wouldn't deny the fact that they're trying to present it in the most persuasive way for their case, which... Well, they should, know, right? Yeah. Oh, I guess they should, but um, you know, you just you see these same people testify all the time, and it's kind of like, okay, we can we can all just let put on an autopilot while this person speaks for about a half hour directly to the jury. But this isn't actually a broader question then. When when technical evidence is being presented, that would go over my head, would go over most people in juries' heads. How how does that help you? Does that hurt you? How are you able to poke holes in something that is as a defense attorney? That is kind of difficult to understand in the first place. Yeah, well, they, they do a good job of breaking it down. So they'll have charts. They'll have pictures of the towers. They'll show the three sides of the towers. They'll explain, you know, how a how a signal from your phone hits that, you know, which facing um, which facing segment of the tower. So they'll really break it down in a rudimentary fashion. So I think most people can understand it. Uh, but I think most jurors' takeaways from it is, okay, that means he was in that general area. They'll never say, and they'll go out of their way to say, we can't say he was on a particular block. We can't say he or she was at a particular house or location, but we can put him in this general vicinity, which corroborates the rest of our case. How many holes do you have to poke into something like that to make it in doubt? Well, it's tough. I mean, you can get your own expert, your own expert to counter what that person said. But most of what that expert's saying 
is not necessarily controversial. It's not necessarily wrong. Right. They're explaining, Scientific, yes. Yeah, they're explaining the fundamentals of the science. Um, so if even if you get your own, your own counter cell tower expert, it's going to be difficult for them to reach a different conclusion other than point out various factors why your cell phone might not have hit that tower. Even though it was the closest one, there's reasons why, whether because of diversions of calls to other towers, why it couldn't have been that your client was nearest that cell tower at the time. Mike Leonard here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. A lot of texts about this, and a few texts about uh, innocence until proven guilty, which I know you subscribe to 100%, and we should say that you know this is alleged evidence, of course, what we're hearing, uh, or you know that he allegedly did it. One interesting point from the 847, though, I'm trying to think of like a juror. I don't know if this would be unanimous guilt. We don't have all the evidence, right? They're, they just presented some of it enough to try and make the case that he shouldn't get bail, right? They're not playing all their cards in this pretrial, these pretrial motions, right? Oh, oh not at all. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a couple different processes that lead to someone, first of all, being charged and then being given bail or denied bail. You know, first of all, oftentimes cases are taken to a grand jury. And the old adage is, you know, you can convict, uh, you can indict a ham sandwich because it's prosecutors presenting whatever they want to present Mm -hmm. in the most persuasive fashion to establish that there's a crime has been committed to get the jury to return an indictment. Right. And then in in this phase where you're at a, a detention hearing, the question is, should this person get bail or not? Again, the prosecutors can present what they want in the most inflammatory, prejudicial manner to try to get this guy denied bail. And then you're combating that. If you're their defense lawyer and his and his counsel, with the bombardage of public information, which is of course not saying he's innocent, it's saying this guy did it. He right. did it. You know, they may call him a suspect, they're, but they're presenting the information in a way that he's already guilty. So, in a case like that, which is highly publicized, you're you're up against it on several fronts. You know, you have some options. You know, can you can try to change the venue of the trial, meaning that instead of it being in this county, this right. particular county district, it gets transferred to another one because of the pretrial publicity. But a case like the Idaho case, you're not going to be very successful Hard, because yeah. you, you would certainly, if you could, not want it to be in the district where the school sits, certainly. But let's say you get it to another county or another district. This case is so highly publicized, you're, you're, it's going to be very it. difficult to pick a, a group of jurors who don't know a lot about the case. A lot of people asking, what was this guy's motive? And that's a great question. I know he's a, a, a criminal, if he in fact did this, he was a criminology uh, a background. And, you know, we don't know yet. I actually just have a general question about motive. They always say, like, you need to prove motive to prove a case. Is that true? No, of course not. Uh, but on TV, you know, the yes. TV, they say he had motive, he had opportunity, you know. But no, of course, you'd never have to prove motive. But of course, it's persuasive to prove motive. It's I part mean, of the story. Of course. In so, of course, you're going to try to persuade and explain to the jury for your prosecution why this person was motivated to commit this crime. Because it's you want not. the jury to understand the full picture, right? Like, I think that that's sometimes maybe a juror's holdout is they're like, yes, this evidence lines up, but it just doesn't feel right. He seems like a nice guy. Why would he do this? Maybe that's like the last thing you need, but it's not required. Of course. So in, in every criminal case, John, when the jury goes back to deliberate and before they go to deliberate the jury, the judge reads to them a set of, you know, often complex and lengthy instructions, right? How are you going to make this decision? How you apply the law? You know, what you can consider, not consider. Um, but of course, none of the elements of the crime that have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt will be motive. You know, they don't have to show, you know, element one, two, or three that they had a motive to commit the crime. They just have to prove the elements of the crime. But of course, as you just pointed out, 
what's going to persuade a group of people that someone did something other than evidence that why they would do it? You know, the jilted lover theory or the monetary theory, you know, whatever the motive is, it helps explain to people and put the story and the elements into context. Okay, let's take a break. 312-981-7200. Lots of great texts and calls, too. Let's get them in for Mike Leonard, Leonard Trial Lawyers. Oh, where? what's the best way for people to reach you, Mike, and who should be reaching out to you? John, 312-380-6559. We regularly represent individuals at trial in federal and state criminal cases, and we also represent individuals who sue companies for things such as whistleblowing. LeonardTrialLawyers.com, L-E-O-N-A-R-D, TrialLawyers.com. More after this. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Earlier in the show, I played at the assault weapons ban interview I did yesterday with the representative uh, who is leading the sponsorship of this bill, which still needs to be signed by the Illinois Senate and signed by the governor. They're on a little deadline here. In the next hour, I'll play uh, the portion I had with the opposite uh, opposite side, because that's what we do here, Mike Leonard, both sides of an argument. Exactly. And I think, John, one of the things you mentioned had come up on the text or the hotline was this DNA evidence has been reported yes. in, the, in the Idaho case and what significance of that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, number one, you know, the studies have, have shown that jurors find DNA evidence like other CSI type evidence to be extremely powerful. You know, right. people find DNA evidence to be very persuasive that makes sense that, to me. That the person was there, right? And so, that, again, that's going to be a powerful piece that's going to be presented by the prosecutors. And it's, an, it's, again, another one where it's difficult from the defense side to rebut it. Of course, it's it's a, it's a you can do a little better job with your own expert in terms of poking holes in it and you can tack things such as how it was collected, how it was processed in the lab, chain of custody. The, 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 yeah, the training and of the experience of the personnel in the lab who did it, the error rate of the lab. So there's a lot of things you can do to poke holes that I think are sometimes more effective on DNA versus cell tower evidence. However, people find DNA evidence very compelling. Well, right, especially they're saying it was left on the knife sheath yeah it's not like it was on the dresser or in the kitchen somewhere else where maybe someone could argue he had been in the house before he had been welcomed in by one of the the victims weeks before i, I know none of this by the yeah, way yeah. i'm just so, saying like that could be an argument yeah, you could so, make. yeah and then so you're if you're the defense attorney you're hoping that there's somebody else who had access to that knife maybe shared the space with the individual or something like that something. would explain why this person would have touched it at some right. point in time but of course innocent until proven guilty I agree with you, John. That's that's the hallmark, and it's, sometimes it's frustrating because I think people this this Idaho case is not necessarily a good example, but right. people who are jurors sometimes walk into court and have a mindset: oh, gee, well they're charged with something, maybe they must have done something wrong, which really is not how our system is designed. But you know, it's it's a normal thought process, but it's kind of uh, it's sort of defeating of the system when you're when you're come to view the evidence from that standpoint. I think I, I've never served in a jury. I would love to one day, Mike, if you can get my name in somewhere, but make it a really quick case. I'm surprised you haven't got called yet. I would, I would try to bounce you, John. No, <laughs> I, no I think you'd be uh, I think you'd be a very open-minded individual. I wouldn't bounce you. Well, the, actually, that's the a defense, great point. The defense side would certainly keep you. I host prosec- a legal show. The prosecutors would probably bounce you. Really? Because I host a legal Cause show? Because you're too open-minded. <laughs> I bet some uh, prosecutors uh, want to call in. 312 What else you been up to, Mike? I mean, they might also bounce you because you're a hipster, John. You know, maybe maybe that's maybe it's <laughs> those, those new glasses you got. You oh, know? These are because I didn't was too lazy to put my contacts in here because okay. I've gotten okay. no sleep in the well last few weeks. Anyways, speaking of no sleep, you're a busy man. Yeah, look at been, that! Look at that professional transition. What do you got for been us? An interesting week, yeah. As I said, the big thing is just getting ready for trial on Monday. But you know, also had an interesting uh, federal sentencing hearing this week, and we've talked about those a little bit in the past. And it's it's 
timely and untimely, it was a it was a federal gun case, but nothing like the assault type assault rifle you were talking about or assault weapons ban. It was it was kind of just a uh, a typical Chicago handgun, so to speak, where the what happens typically in federal court in Chicago, there's a lot of gun cases that are now charged. And so it's really a, a campaign by the federal prosecutors. What happens is often individuals are charged in state court with a gun possession case, and then the federal authorities will essentially cherry pick the gun case and instead just you know the state people will dismiss the state gun case and it'll become a federal gun case and they're looking for ones where what's called oftentimes a uh, felon in possession charge meaning it's illegal if you're convicted of a felony and it's a federal offense to be in possession of a gun so a lot of those times the state case gets charged it's sit the case sits for a while like in my client's case he sat in county custody for about eight months mm-hmm. and then the state prosecutors dismissed the case and it was charged federally immediately and so we went does to, it have to be dismissed for a federal cha- charge to it, come it, in it actually doesn't i was going to say but, that's, but but typically it is it's just the way it goes because they don't they know that the judges on both sides aren't going to aren't going to give you a double punishment they're right. going to take into account the other case so typically the state case gets dismissed you go to court in federal court on the federal, you know, the felon in possession case, which we did. It didn't go to trial. The individual pled guilty. And it was one of those in- interesting circumstances where, you know, the government's asking for him to be put in federal prison for two years. We were pitching the judge that, you know, he should be given home confinement, meaning he should be allowed to serve any sentence that he gets from his home, from his residence, and be allowed to work. It was one of those interesting ones where he had a lot of extenuating circumstances, meaning that. During the couple of years the case was pending, the guy did extraordinarily well in his job, was on the verge of getting a supervisory position, had taken care and custody of his children, all these great How old things. Is this guy? Uh, mid-30s. Okay. Yeah. So the judge really struggled with it, the federal court judge, and ultimately did reach, a, I think, what was really a great result under the circumstances because, you know, sentencing is supposed to be individualistic, right? And you look at the person's criminal history, a mm-hmm. lack of it, and all these other circumstances, and agreed that the appropriate sentence was eight months of home confinement, meaning the individual would have to serve the sentence from home, but could still work, could still go to church services, things of that nature. So we're really gratified with the result in that case. I struggle with it, and I imagine you do too, because you recognize, of course, that there is a gun problem in our city, in our state, and many issues with it. But we also have an issue with putting people behind bars and preventing them from working, and then that really causes some huge issues that affects their kids, and it can be this vicious cycle. And I guess that really is where sentencing is, where the judges make these such important calls about you know, weighing what is best for the community as a whole. And that's not an easy decision to make. Yeah. And in this case, what the interesting factor too was, since he had done about eight months in state custody, he wasn't going to get any credit for that from the Bureau of Prisons. Oh, meaning they wouldn't yeah. have taken that account. So she certainly was th- was mindful of that issue. But more importantly, you're looking at the person's criminal history. There's a, lot, there's a huge difference between someone who's had maybe two or three or four gun convictions mm-hmm. versus someone who's had none, someone who is on a on an arc of employment and family history that shows you that, you know, especially when the case pens for two or three years, you can kind of see whether this person is showing an arc of development or not and what they do with their time during those two or three years. And was there a crime associated with the gun, too, or no? Just no, no okay. crime associated right. with the gun, which mm. is all, always a huge factor uh, in, yes. in favor of the defendant, meaning he was merely possessing the gun. Again, we have a gun problem, but he wasn't using it to rob anybody, hold anybody up. So, you know, the judge considered that an important factor as well. For sure. 
I uh, don't want to run out of time before I mention uh, anything going on with the Supreme Court here in Illinois and you. Uh, yeah, we have an interesting case where we won at trial. It was a civil case. We went before a jury. We represented an individual who was formerly employed by the CTA. It's what's called a whistleblower case, meaning you're saying, hey, I was fired for blowing the whistle on the CTA. We won at trial before the jury. They awarded a significant amount of money to the individual. The case went up to the Illinois Appellate Court. We won again. The CTA again went back to the appellate court and said, hey, we think you're wrong. Reconsider it. The appellate court said, no, you're still wrong. And then now they have filed a petition for the Illinois Supreme Court to hear the case. And so we had to oppose that. And so, hopefully, so since hopefully they, that's since, the end of it. Since but, they lost an appeal, they have to petition directly then to the Supreme Court. To the Illinois Supreme Court. Right. Yeah, we're not talking about the U.S. So, right. so they would petition. It's called petition relief to appeal to Illinois Supreme Court to get them to hear the case. Okay. Right? And so they want them to reverse the decision of the Illinois Appellate Court. And, of course, we don't want them to hear the case at all. We want this jury verdict that occurred several years ago now to be enforced. So we've been battling on that front as well, John. Got a great question from the 847. If the Safety Act goes to the Illinois Supreme Court, well, it will. I think they're going to hear arguments in March, and it's ruled valid or upheld. Can the counties who ruled it unconstitutional appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court? The answer is yes. Well, they'd have to raise a federal constitutional yes. question. So, yes. you know, people, you know, hear Illinois Supreme Court, they hear United States Supreme Court, but they're not interchangeable. So, you know, before the Illinois Supreme Court, you'd be raising questions about either Illinois case law or Illinois laws, meaning statutes, um, or the Illinois Constitution. To get before the United States Supreme Court, they'd have to fashion a U.S. constitutional argument, which I'm not sure if they could or could yeah, not. They're, they're certainly going to try. Um, so, you know, it's it's a case that's unlikely to go beyond the Illinois Supreme Court, and hopefully we get a ruling quickly. But if they're not hearing arguments until March, I don't think well, this issue will be resolved till mid-year. Right, because there's something—the reason why this case is reaching the Illinois Supreme Court is because in the Illinois Constitution, there's a line about bail— and there's then this idea that, well, if they put that in the Illinois Constitution, how can legislators take it out where we have a remedy for the state constitution? That's the voters doing it. Correct. Which we so, saw with the Workers' Right Amendment. But there's, I, if, I don't think there's a cash bail line. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I read in the U.S. Constitution, it's much smaller and quicker to the point. Yeah, there, there, there's nothing like that in the U.S. Constitution. But yeah, they'd be raising the argument that it's unconstitutional under the Illinois Constitution and also... It violates what's called the separation of powers, meaning that the legislative can't do things that they don't have the authority to do. So it'll be interesting. I, I really I'm hopeful representing defendants that the law does get upheld because you, we just see, John, far too often where people are languishing in county jails for one, two, three, four years before their case ever gets to go to trial, which right. really has a detrimental effect on the ability to of the individual to defend their case, the ability of the individual to um, just not want to just give up. And it makes it statistically extremely more likely that they're going to plead guilty when they're denied bond. But you could see the argument of the separation of powers where someone says, well, okay, that's all well and good, but shouldn't the voters vote on this since cash bail is loosely lined up in the Illinois Supreme Court? I read th- or in the Constitution. Um, boy, we could go on forever about we this. We could, John. We don't have time We don't for have it. another hour, though. Yeah, we, we do could, not. We exactly. could talk other cheeseburger joints, too. We, we could, exactly. Yeah. No, we're going to chat employment law in the next hour. Mike, it's always great to see you, my friend. John, thank you. What's the Happy number again where people can call you? 312-380-6559. All right, at lettertriallawyers.com. Talk soon, Mike. Okay? Thanks, John. Time Take for care. the news on WGN.